<laughs> Missing the point. Um, I think I was about 30, maybe uh, somewhere in there. Diane does a really good job with my birthdays. And a friend of mine had called me and said, hey, will you come over because I'm going to, he's, he's a karate guy and he wanted me to, he asked me if I would tape his thing. I, I don't even know what it was. Sure, I'll, I'll come over and do that. And weirdly, Diane wanted to go too. So I said, okay, whatever, well, you can come too. So we get there and all my buddies from college are there and they, they're like coming out of the house one at a time and I'm thinking, this is so weird. This guy looks just like my buddy Alan, and that guy looks just like Chris. And so it finally hits me. These, these, these are my buddies from, from college, and, and I'm just like, this is the most amazing coincidence in the world. They're all at Tom's house, right? And, you know, eventually I figured out that Diane had planned all of this, and at that point, my admiration went from them back to her where it should have been originally. But again, you know, Diane's kind of, she had to have been like, man, Jerry is so thick. <laughs> Golly. I, I think the better story is the, is the child on Christmas morning. Everybody in the room knows what's in the box, but the kid doesn't. Right? The kid doesn't watch TV, doesn't get the commercials, doesn't understand how this thing that's in the box is packaged all. He had no, no idea. So on Christmas morning, right, everybody, everybody in the room so excited that the kid's going to open the box and get this new toy. And what does the kid do? He plays with the box. He's never seen the toy before. He has no idea what joy this toy is going to bring him. And mom and dad, I'm sure, are sitting there thinking, oh, all that money. <laughs> and we could have just given the kid a box. There's our boy. Yep. <laughs> That's our boy. Um, more interested in the empty box than the toy that was in the box. Again, all the adults in the room know, but not the kid. And I would suggest this morning that a very similar thing happened on Easter morning. Um, Jesus had been in the tomb for three days, um, and, and then he's not. <laughs> then he's, he's not. Um, the crowd was focused on the empty box, the empty tomb, while poor Jesus is kind of over on the side going, hey, <laughs> Hey, the gift is over here. It's, that's an empty box. <laughs> over here, over here. Uh, this, is, this is where the gift is. And I would suggest this morning also that if we don't open our spiritual eyes to what's going on in this chapter in John, we're going to miss one of the greatest gifts that God has for us. We think we are onto it. We think we have it. But I, I believe with all my heart that a lot of people simply have no idea. Literally, they're still playing with the box. Right? They have not even dealt with the gift that's inside the box. I want to look at that gift this morning. I'm going to start in verse 11 of chapter 20 of John. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. There's a great start. A little background for you. Um, Douglas basically told us the first two-thirds of the story, what I'll call the story, right? The first third is that Jesus died for our sins. Very exciting news. <laughs> That's fantastic news. The second third of the story right? Not the second half, but the second third of the story involves him raising on Easter morning, right? Death didn't hold him down. Death was defeated. This is incredible news. Now, thankfully, Douglas left the last third of the story for me to unfold for you all because there is a last third of the story that completes the story in just an amazing and amazing, amazing way. The third part of that story involves the gift that nobody recognized on that first day, and I believe that still people don't recognize to their own detriment, right, their own consequences, which aren't good because they have not recognized what's in that crazy box. Okay, so it's the third day, Sunday morning. Um, 
first day of the week, you know, the Sabbath is, is the, their last day of the week, and on a Saturday, so Sunday, the first day of the week. Um, Sunday morning, uh, Mary's come down early, no Jesus in the tomb, right? So already her day has is, is already started really rotten. Her closest, one of her closest friends on this earth has died, and being a good Jew, she wants to make sure that the body is properly buried. This is super important, just incredibly important, that the body is properly taken care of upon, upon death. Um, so she goes down there, and there's no Jesus. So she runs back. She tells Peter and John. They come, check in the, you know, yep, yep, you're right, no Jesus. And they go back up, go back into hiding. And she remains there at the tomb by herself, just standing outside the tomb. But as she wept, she peered into the tomb. It says this in verse 11 and 12. As she wept, she bent over to look inside the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. And this is kind of crucial here, one at the foot and one at the head. One at the head and the other at the foot. The other Gospels, as you read through the other Gospels, there's usually one or two guys there. There's some folded up, piled up, whatever, burial clothes there. And, but John describes it very differently. And what a lot of, a lot of Bible scholars and theologians believe that is he's, he's making a statement here. He didn't change the facts at all, but he's making an incredible statement here. Um, with the two angels sitting at the two ends of what would have been his, his tomb, Bible scholars have seen in this picture actually the picture of the Ark of the Covenant. Let me, let me show you a picture of the Ark of the Covenant um, if you haven't seen that before. Um, this, is, this is the Ark that they carried around. If anybody touched it, out of the pool, party's over. Um, inside was the, the, the stone tablets, uh, the rod of Aaron, and a jar of manna, you know, the, the, the little wafers that they got in the desert. And this was just an incredibly important box. And on top of these, this box are these, these cherubs, right, these, these guardians. Um, and, and the idea that in between those guardians is, is a, what appears to be a seat, and it's called the mercy seat. That, that's where judgment is, is dished out. Um, and so like the mercy seat found above the Ark of the Covenant, many scholars have seen the empty tomb as the place where God himself made atonement for sin, right? So you kind of got to picture this, but instead of the box, you see the empty tomb, and instead of these two winged figures, you see the two angels sitting at the foot and at the head. And it's as if Mary didn't have a clue. She right over the top. But John, the writer, is kind of foreshadowing for his future readers. He's saying, look, Christ did more than defeat death, right? He defeated sin. Upon that place that we're looking in right now, that's where sin was defeated. That's where God decisively dealt with sin from his mercy seat. So I, that's a freebie. I'm not going anywhere with that one. That was just, just for you to take home and just be amazed. Um, uh, so we see Mary crying. Um, and, and, and one of the two angels ask her, you know, women, why are you crying? And she replies, this is verse 13 and 14, they've taken my Lord away. You notice it's not Jesus, it's not the Lord. It's incredibly personal for her. I mean, I, I can't emphasize that enough. This is such a, a painful morning for, for Mary, obviously. They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, there's a lot of theories, a lot of theories. Maybe there were tears in her eyes. It's early morning, so the sun's coming up, and it's in her eyes, and there's water in her eyes, so she can't see. Um, it's not what she expected. 
right? If your friend died four days earlier, you simply don't expect them to arrive next to you asking you questions one day. Like, what? And so your brain just can't wrap around it when it's not supposed to be there. You've had those moments where you see something that's not supposed to be there and you literally don't see it because it's not supposed to be there. So it could have been that. Um, there's one theory I read this week as I was digging into this, trying to figure out where I wanted to land on this. Um, it's kind of strange. So Jesus, he dumps his burial clothing. We, we kind of got that, but what's he wearing at that point? I, I know this is going to get weird, but... So there are some scholars who think, well, he's, he's got to find some clothing. He's not going to walk around in these Band-Aids, these strips of cloth and so forth. So he looks outside, peeks outside the tomb, and maybe he sees the gardener's shed, and he sees some overalls. I don't know what they wore then. <laughs> the toga gardening outfit. I, I, I don't know what it was, but Jesus had to be wearing something. So there's this idea out there that Jesus has the gardener's clothes on. And it might have just been the unique nature, another explanation, just the unique nature of the resurrection body, right? It didn't appear as it did three days ago somehow. But what, what, we, do, what, what we do know is throughout the Gospels, those who first see Jesus, they always have trouble identifying him. And they all kind of give different explanations, but bottom line, they, they just have trouble identifying him, recognizing him for who he is. And for whatever reason... Jesus picks up the line of questioning started by the angels, um, but he adds an intriguing second question. So the first question is, you know, woman, why are you crying? And, you know, and, I, and I got to thinking about that, and, and, I'm, and in my mind, if two or even three people are asking you why you're crying, then something about the situation tells me that maybe you shouldn't be crying like, because they're surprised. Why in the world are you crying? Don't you know what's happened? And so there's this, this idea that, that, that um, they're literally, they're, they're a little bit incredulous. Mary, what's your problem? You know, and at another level, I, you all have been to cemeteries, and if you see somebody crying as they're leaning over a tomb, do you ask them, why are you crying? <laughs> no. You'd be, pretty, you'd, be a, you'd be thick like Pastor Jerry. It's like, duh. So there's something going on here. That the writer John is questioning, why in the world are you crying? There's no reason for you to be crying. And then he adds the second question. Who is it you're looking for? And I've brought this out before. The Hebrew language, they have idioms, right? We all have idioms and ways that we use language, right? We'll take a phrase that was originally from this situation and we'll apply it over here. But over time, if you take that same phrase and apply it to somewhere back to the original situation, it doesn't make sense, right? It only makes sense if you knew from where that original phrase was taken from, you know, a hot mess, Right? We use that phrase now, but originally it's a big mess in the kitchen, and now it's a person who's just a big relational mess. But you've you got to understand where the idiom came from, and, and, and we've got kind of this idiom thing that the Hebrews use. They, they ask these questions, that, but they're not the questions that they seem to be, like, where are you? Remember, we looked at that uh, last week, and, and where are you, more often than not, tends to be not where you are locationally or geographically, but where are you in, in a relationship with me? Where, where are you? And this is kind of similar in that respect. Who is it you're looking for? Jesus is asking literally, are you looking for the miracle worker? Are you looking for another show? Or are you looking at me like I'm your friend? 
right? You know Jesus, it's almost like he's a rich person. Do you like me for my money or do you like me for me? And so as you look through the Gospels, Jesus always asks, all the way to the very, very beginning when he started recruiting the disciples, he always asked them, what exactly do you want from me? And I think, again, there's two points to his question here. One is, um, who, like, who wants to know? Like, because he knows that the Jewish authorities are after him and there might be a spy. And like, who wants to know? Are you Jesus? Who wants to know? Right? So he's got that issue, right? He's, he's, he's kind of, he knows he's a hunted man. But he's also got this issue of why do you want to know? Again, what do you want out of me? Do you, do you just want to be my friend or do you want something from me? So again, as you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus asking these, these kind of questions, kind of what does this person want exactly, right, instead of jumping to conclusions. So who is, it, who, who is this? Um, is it in his, are you looking for the Jesus that I used to be and you still want me to be? Or are you looking for the Jesus that I am now and that I need to be? Right? Are you looking for your old buddy? Are you looking, I, I'm, I'm in the process of being glorified now. And, and, and again, in his mind, he's thinking, she doesn't have a clue. There's no way she can. I mean, I've been talking with the disciples for several years now, and they still don't have a clue either. So she's got to be struggling. Kind of, you know, I, I just got to thinking, like, like Diane at that dinner party, she's got to be wondering, oh, my goodness, Jerry. <laughs> Get a clue. Or, you know, poor mom and dad on Christmas morning. Oh, kid, just go play with the toy. Leave the box alone. At a certain, at a certain point, Jesus is looking at Mary going, Mary, do you, do you have any idea what just happened? Do you have any idea what just happened to me? And he's wondering, who is Mary crying out for with this question? Who is it you're looking for? Are you looking for Jesus of Nazareth? Or are you looking for Emmanuel, God with us? Because in people's mind, that's two separate people. One was the guy that walked around and healed people, and he was really nice, and he, he made everybody who was an outcast feel like they were welcome. But, and then there's Emmanuel, God with us. Whoa. Right? And people saw Jesus differently. Some people saw him only as the man, and others saw him as this is the Son of God. And so he, he doesn't know is Mary looking for the man or is Mary looking for the divine in this Jesus? Right? Is she just happy to have her close friend back from death? That, that's a big deal. Right? If you friend, your friend died three days later and then you find out they're actually alive, you're going to be elated. You're going to be through the roof, especially if they were a super, super close friend. And then you go and find out that they're not dead. What? I mean, you're just, you're just excited all, all over the place. But does she understand that he's God? That he's God, not just somebody raised back to life. After all, last week, this guy named Lazarus was raised back to life, so must be a new thing. What's the big deal? Everybody's getting raised back to life now. Or does she understand that this same spirit that raised him to life can also bring life to her broken world and bring joy to her broken world and bring happiness back? Do we understand? Do we understand that God is with us when we're filled with the Holy Spirit? And even if she does recognize Jesus for who he is, there's a second question that Jesus has in the back of his mind, and he's wondering, is she asking me this one? Am I her personal savior? Or is she going to let me be the savior of the world? Is Jesus going to continue just to hang out with me and her and all her friends and save them all from death and disease and 
right? Once they get to the marrying age, hey, Jesus, is this guy worthwhile? Like, great having a Messiah in your village, right? Should I invest in this stock or that stock? God's like, Jesus like, meh, right? It'd be awesome if Jesus just stayed in the village. And Mary had this, like, go-to guy for all her life's questions. And, and you get that impression. She just, she, she, wants, she wants Jesus. She's holding on to him. And like, oh, my, you're, you're back. You're not gone. You're back. Does she understand that now he can give life to the entire world, not just her? That he can give life to the entire world through her and through her disciple friends, through their words, they can give life because they're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit who is life and the giver of life. Does she even recognize any of this or is it still super just her, just like her pain and, and her suffering. And, and do we, do we understand that Jesus wants to save the entire world, but he needs our help? I know you don't like to hear that. But we're his demonstration and we're his proof that love works. Right? That's what we looked at last week. The whole point of our unity is that the world would look at us, uh, look at us and go, wow, they're, they're right. Love works. When we look at the rest of the world, love does not work. But when we look at that church people, man, it works. How do they do that? How do they do that? Now, here's the kicker. We're his demonstration and we're his proof that love can win. And he knows we're it, and he's super excited about it, which is really weird because we're, right, we're broken vessels. We're, we're kind of basket cases ourselves. But he's super excited. Like, he knows something that maybe the people in the room don't quite know yet, right? He knows, he knows something. So, Mary responds to this man she doesn't know who he is. It's Jesus, right? just in case you're not catching on. Um, thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him so I will go and get him because you know, she's got to properly bury her Savior. Her, her Man, this, this is such a big deal for Mary. But the writer John is having a little bit of fun with this line. The man in the story might not have been the gardener of that particular burial garden, but if you think about it, she's right on an absolutely higher level, right? This, this guy that's asking her questions, um, he's the gardener, capital G. I don't know how to make that. I'm not a gangster. <laughs> um, right? This is, this is the caretaker of the world, capital C, right? The Lord of the universe, capital L. <laughs> no, that's loser. Don't do that either, right? This, this is the guy. This is, he is the gardener. And I think John's just having some fun with us here, right? So anyway, there's a freebie. You can have fun with that one. Then Jesus made himself known to Mary simply by speaking her name, right? He had said, my sheep will know me by my voice. He just says, Mary. Whew. The lights come on. He said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means um, teacher. And I want to read this. This is, I tried to put this into my own words so I wouldn't plagiarize, but... I just couldn't. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give credit to this person, and this is what they write. In one or two seconds that this turn took, so she's peering into the tomb, and then she says, where have you taken the body? And she must have turned away one more time, and, and Jesus said, Mary. All right? And in the one or two seconds that this turn took, I imagine the world shifted ever so slightly on its axis. And about this turn's one-second midpoint trajectory, history, too, moved almost imperceptibly from B.C. to A.D. 
A second before this turn, there is a woman in deepest human despair, in the agonizing presence of inconquerable death. A second after the beginning of this turn, there is a woman in the deepest possible human elation, in the presence of the death-conquering central figure of history. When she turned to him at this moment, human history took a turn to a responsible hope for the invincibility of death and so to the conquest of meaninglessness. In one second, the world went from death with no explanation, just incomprehensible. In one second, the death had a purpose. It was actually glorious. Right? This is actually good news horrible. I mean, she's having a roller coaster of a morning. I, I tell you what, she's just, she's all over the place. And then after this, one of the, probably the most difficult passages in Scripture, verse 17, Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, this one is one of those where, you know, scholars, they've been arguing, I mean, and I, I'm going to kind of, kind of bring it, synopsis here for you. Um, one theory is his resurrection body wasn't complete, Right? Um, but then other scholars argue, but later on in the day, he goes and tells them, you know, stick your hand on my side, put your. So, what happened that suddenly he's okay to touch? So, a lot of scholars have an issue with that, that explanation. Another explanation was just, just don't hold on to me so tightly. I haven't yet ascended. I, I, I'm really here. Right? So, it's literally like, relax, relax. I, I know you're excited. I, I know you're excited, but, but I'm not going to ascend for another. We find out another 40 days, right? So there couldn't have been this big hurry, let go, go, I got I to ascend, right? He's going to be in and around for another 40 days. So that was kind of mean of him if, if that's the explanation. A third one, um, and this is one I just read this week. I did not know about this. He's actually talking about going up to temple because Scripture tells us that, that as the first person to be brought back to life, he is the first fruits, and God's word says that in the harvest, um, harvest time, when you get your first fruits, you, you, you present it to God. That's the first thing that happens. Then all the rest of the harvest is blessed by God, but you give God the first fruits. And Jesus might very well have been saying, I, I need to go appear at the temple. I need to appear before my heavenly Father as the first fruits. I, again, I, I, I don't know. The, a fourth one, and, and this is where a lot of folks have landed. She's just basically begging him not to leave again. She's just like, hey, Jesus, let's not do this again. You've, you wrecked me this last three or four days. You, you just wrecked me. And now you show up, and you're not where you're supposed to be. You were supposed to be in this tomb, and now you stand up here talking with me, and now you tell me I can't hold on to you. And, and I mean, her, her mourning Oh, my goodness. She's just all over the place. Her friend's dead, and then he's alive, and then he's not, and he doesn't want to talk with her. He doesn't want It's a poor girl. Just horrible, horrible situation. So I'm thinking as I look at this, <clears throat> this is an incredibly painful moment for both Mary and Jesus. Right? Again, we understand Mary's mindset. She's, she's a hot mess. She's, you ever met somebody who's just too much has happened and they're just a blubbering mess and you really can't reason with them? I, I think Jesus is like, we'll talk later. <laughs> once, you, once you get it together, we'll, we'll talk later. Um, I would suggest that Jesus was a mess too. He had no way of knowing for certain that he would rise on the third day. Y'all recognize that. So here he is on the third day and he's, he's kind of tickled. 
<laughs> you know he had to be. And so his morning's already kind of all over the place. And, and the bigger deal is people are all focused on his empty tomb and the fact that he's alive, but he's got something more important to say. He's got something so important to say, he can't hardly hold it, and he's busting at the seams, right? We're, we're going we're to get to that. Jesus had no way of knowing that he'd rise on the third day. Now he's ready to point out the real gift, but again, everybody is hyper-focused on the tomb and the empty body. They're missing the point. They're missing the point, and now Jesus gets a little bit agitated, just, just a little bit. He says, go instead and tell my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father um, and to my God and your God. And, and I love this. You know, I, I, I want to believe that in this scene between Jesus and Mary, he's ministering to her. He's not being mean to her, right? In my mind's eye, I see her taking... Him taking her face in his hands and saying, look, I know you're excited. I'm excited too. We're all just super excited. But the rest of the world needs to hear that I'm alive. And so you and I, we'll talk a little bit later, but for right now, I really need you to go and tell the rest of the disciples that I'm not dead. Mary, okay, okay, and, and she's off, and she's, she's, she's good, good to go. She's, she's good to go. And, and I think in this point, um, again, he doesn't stop ministering. I mean, that's just Jesus. He just never stops. Um, but he's definitely got some good news, and it, like he's busting. He's, like I said earlier, he's busting at the seams, and actually he lets out a little bit of the secret, right? The, the secret is my dad is going to adopt you all. We're all going to be one big family as of today. After I give you this incredible gift, we're going to be one big family. And he's so excited, he lets it slip. I'm not only going to see my father, it's your father too. Not only my God, but your God too. And he's just like, ah, so excited. So then in one fell swoop, Jesus unleashes what is so excited about. What he knew would happen but nobody else quite figured it out. John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20 says this, peace be with you. Now, right over the top, but just slow down for a second. This, this was a traditional Jewish greeting. Peace be with you, shalom. And the idea behind it, it, it was an expectation of the future. Peace will be with you when the Messiah comes. Peace will be with you on that great day of the Lord. Right now, it's just a prayer. But one day, one day, it's kind of like when, when Jews celebrate Passover, they, all, they always end it as next year in Jerusalem, right? Next year in Jerusalem. It's a, it's a future hope. And in this passage, Jesus is saying it's no longer a future hope. I can finally give you peace today, right? I can finally give you what you've been praying for forever, I can finally give you peace today. I'm finally, right, the resurrection, that, that had to happen. That had to happen in order for me to give you what I'm about to give you. After he had said this, he showed them there's hands and sides. And again, interesting that John never indicated that nobody recognized Jesus until he said, oh, you don't recognize me. I, you know, I suddenly appear in your room, and you still don't know I, who I am. And he's lifting up, and, and, and it never says that they went, oh, it's you, there's never any of that. Begs the question, so why? If he knew that they knew, why, why the demonstration? I think this is crucial. The words, excuse me, the wounds and the scars of history have not disappeared. 
but have been re-narrated and redefined as the reminders of the depths of divine grace. Jesus is saying, look, the world thought that they won. Evil thought that they had won the day. Evil lost. Evil has been winning so much up to this point, but as of today, evil loses. Evil loses as of today. Jesus had promised to turn their grief into rejoicing several times throughout the book of John. Job accomplished. What does it say? They were overjoyed. Job accomplished. And then the gift that would make everybody's joy complete forever. Even after Jesus ascends to heaven and is not there like Mary wants him to be bodily, right? Even if that's not going to happen, even when they no longer see Jesus, right? He's going to give them the gift. This is the thing that Jesus knew about that everybody else was in the fog about. This is the gift that Jesus knew would never stop giving. This is the gift still waiting in the box for so many people. Verse 21 and 22, and again Jesus said, peace be with you. And then he, how does that happen? Because I can go around saying peace, 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 peace be with you, and then I can check on you tomorrow and I can find out you didn't get peace. Prayer wasn't answered. But in this situation, Jesus is saying, peace be with you, and now I'm going to give it to you. Receive the Holy Spirit. That's the gift. That's the gift that's in the box that nobody opens. Oh, the Holy Spirit, the forgotten God. I'm comfortable with Jesus and God. I kind of got my mind wrapped around them, but this Holy Spirit thing, I just just don't know. And Jesus is saying, look, the empty tomb, great, and that's good. Me being resurrected, I'm going to be gone in about 39 days, you know, 40 days. Don't don't get too wrapped up in that. Yes, it was absolutely vital, absolutely crucial, because that's the only way that I can now give you the real gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives life just like I give life, like my Father in heaven gives life. The gift is the presence of God in your life. You do not need to go to temple to find God anymore. You do not need to bring an animal to kill anymore. You don't need to do any of those things. Jesus indicates that his heavenly Father is now our Father too. His God is now our God too. So the lasting connection between peace and and joy, and life, and you all is the Holy Spirit. That's the connection. Right? So Douglas was right. First part of the story, God died for our sins. Second part of the story, he rose again, defeated death. But the third part of the story, that's the kicker. That's the amazing part of the story. We now, even though Christ leaves, we now have his presence in our lives 24-7 when we ask to be filled with his Holy Spirit. I just wanted this morning, a lot of you have decided in your own lives, you, you, you love the resurrection of Jesus, you trusted in that same spirit that raised Jesus to life, will one day raise you to life when you meet your final day. Um, you've received life after death. Right? If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you now have life after death. But Jesus is saying, I can give you life before death. I can give you life right now, life abundantly. I can entirely sanctify, not glorify you, which will remove you from the presence of sin altogether, but I can entirely sanctify you. Right? I can so fill you with my presence that you actually desire to love me more than you desire to love the world. I can do that. 
But you got to be, you, you got to ask. You got to ask. You have set, you've accepted me, but will you now accept my Holy Spirit into your life? Will you be daily filled with him so that every day, not that you won't make mistakes anymore, but that you don't have to make them anymore? Because you have power in your life that will get you around that latest temptation, whatever it is that's knocking on your door, has been knocking on your door for so long, and you keep answering it, right? You know it's on the other side of the door, but you keep answering it, and it's always misery. God is saying, I will give you the power to leave that dumb door alone. Don't answer the door. You know what's on the other side of the door. You don't have to open the door. I want you to bow your heads this morning. I want to challenge you this morning. I, again, a lot of you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you have life after death. But I have a distinct impression that many people have not experienced life before death. Right? They look at their current life and they think, well, this is, this is death. This isn't any better than anything else. But I want to challenge you. I want, to, I want the Holy Spirit to challenge you this morning that he wants to give you life right now. He wants to entirely sanctify you. He wants to remove that desire to please yourself and replace it with a desire to please him. It's not 100% because that won't happen until we're glorified and in his presence. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, you get a big old huge running start. And some of you are you're still sitting at the starting line going, well, when's this amazing thing supposed to happen? It's not going to happen until you accept the Holy Spirit in your life and give him control every single day. Jesus can be your Savior, but we all need a Holy Spirit, right, to point out things every day, all day long. Don't do that. That's going to hurt so-and-so. Don't, don't do that. That's, you're going to hurt somebody over here. The Holy Spirit is that incredible gift that a lot of the world, I don't think, has accepted that gift. They don't even know about that gift. They just struggle and they struggle and they struggle and they struggle. Bow your heads. Father, we want peace. Finally. And Father, in this very passage, you offer us that peace. Father, I know people are listening to me right now who have never taken this step They've accepted Jesus as their Savior, but they have never sought to be filled with your Holy Spirit on a regular basis, daily, minute by minute. Father, you want to see victory in the lives of the people before you right now. And your word says that that will only happen by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Your presence in our very lives so, Father, I pray right now, every person in this room, if they haven't prayed this prayer, Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me to overfilling. Fill me in such a way that I just, I don't want to please myself anymore. I, I want to please you more than anything else. And I can't do that on my own. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. And I'm left staring at an empty box. So, Father, this morning whether you're in the building or listening at home. Simple prayer, Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me love you more than I love the world. And from here on out, it'll be a process. The Holy Spirit's going to be pointing stuff out to you that you never noticed before, that you never thought was a problem. But you've reached a point right now where you've decided there's too many corners in my house that still have junk in them, and they keep messing things up. And so, Father, I, I give your spirit permission to go throughout this house. You own everything now.
You call all the shots. Your word says that this is what's going to finally give me peace. If I stop, if I stop shouldering all of this stuff and allow you to shoulder it, Father, that's what we're praying for this morning. And every person in this room that hears my voice, that you would shoulder it all. The shame, the hurt, the brokenness, all of that. And in exchange that you would give us life. Life abundantly. Filled with joy, filled with happiness, regardless of circumstances. Father, I thank you for this in advance. Because I know you've been working at this. You started way before I stood up here, and, and you're going to continue way after I'm long gone. And so, Father, we, we just thank you for that fact alone. We love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. Um, Holy Spirit, thank you so much for giving us life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.